I'm Josh Zeman, and this is Searching for the Sons of Sam. Hey, everyone. We hope you enjoyed our doc series on Netflix and found our podcast to be an even deeper dive into Maury Terry's investigation. Now, our series has wrapped, but we still have some additional discussions for you in this bonus episode. First up is Son of Sam victim Carl De Niro. Now, you may remember Carl from our doc series and from episode four of our podcast. My name's Carl De Niro. I'm 64 years old. I'm a dad. More to the point, I'm the second victim of the Son of Sam shootings, which uh, happened back in October of 76. I was 20 years old. Not that I've spent, you know, 50 hours a week for the last 30 years uh, researching the case, but I've worked on this case for 30 years just trying to get answers as to what really happened because the official story, there's too many holes in it. Too many things were ignored. And I don't have all the answers, but I've worked for 30 years trying to get those answers. I was shot October 23rd, 1976. I was 20 years old and five days away from reporting to basic training in the uh, United States Air Force. You know, went out to make out with Rosemary Keenan and um, my life changed in a flash forever. Obviously, I didn't go into the Air Force. And I just went through a series of confused bewilderment, you know, asking why, you know, you know, did someone stalk me? Um, at the time, there was no serial killer. It was a random shooting. The cops thought it was a drug deal and gone wrong. I told him, I said, it definitely wasn't a drug deal, but I don't know who shot me. Six months later, through ballistics, they put, you know, some bullet fragments of my shooting and three other shootings and said, we have serial killer. So that was a high point for me because I felt vindicated, but it just opened up a whole new set of questions. To be honest with you, it wasn't until Maury Terry's book, my second inclination, that there might be other people involved. But a serial killer was kind of a new thing. I guess there, there, there was serial killers, but they really weren't identified as serial killers in early 76. I know law enforcement has looked back, especially the FBI, and say, you know, there was some serial killers in the 60s and maybe even in the 50s, but they weren't called serial killers. So serial killer and profiling were brand new in 1976. Um, what did they know? You know, uh, they were trying everything. They were watching TV shows to see if they could, you know, get clues as how how a serial killer thinks and works. They obviously were watching The Wicker Man because of a name that was in uh, one of the letters that the son of Sam wrote, Wicked King Wicker. So it's like, oh, you know, a movie. All right, maybe we get a clue. It's a horror movie, which I know horror doesn't equate to satanic, but it's a, you know, stepsister. So I find it ironic that... They zeroed in on that, but yet in that same letter, there's another name, John Wheaties, suffocator of a rapist of young girls. And John Carr was known as John Wheaties, and anyone that lived in Yonkers knew it. And his father's name was Sam, which makes him a son of Sam. And he actually had a listing in the phone book. Um, it's, you know, Sam Carr owned an answering service. And at one point, he gave one of the lines to the two older kids, which is Wheat Carr and John Carr. So 
just to save space as the listing because you had to pay money to keep your name out of the book. So they just, John Wheat. So all this is true so far. This part is my assumption um, because I know I was a teenager once too and um, I think his friend started teasing him because his sister, his name is Wheat. She's a girl. Now you're listening to the phone book as John Wheat and I think it became his nickname, you know. Now, why the cops didn't pick up on that? Because there's a lot more going on there than the wicker man. You know, this guy lives in Yonkers. His father's name is Sam. His, he's got a phone listing, John Weedy. And in the letter that they're deciphering, of course, because they're looking at the wicker man, you didn't pick up on that. And you know what? I'll give the NYPD a pass in 77. But when it was... Brought up again, along with additional information in the ensuing years, they just poo-pooed it and, and basically said, Maury Terry's a crazy conspiracy theorist. And it's like, it, it's right there. It, it might not be true, but you didn't investigate it, and you, know, and you didn't investigate it later. Do you remember what Berkowitz said when he was arrested? There's two different quotes where I guess uh, Berkowitz comes out. Berkowitz says, do you know who you have? And he goes, you tell me, and it's like, son of Sam. Another one of the lines was, um, you know, you're under arrest. You're David Barkwitz, you're under arrest. And he turned to the cop and said, what took you so long? I wasn't there, but my own my own opinion, that was um, that was just someone that, that somebody somebody just jazzed that up. That, that's just too convenient. That That's a line from a Hollywood script. <laughs> Looking back at the arrest, you know, were there some things that kind of don't jive now that you were looking back? Well, sure. I mean, actually, that's one thing I could say, uh, you know, uh, on uh, August 11th, when the papers came out, uh, August 11th, 77, and it's like, yo, son of Sam caught, you know, David Barkowitz, postal worker, and you see this chubby, smiling guy, and it's like, what? That's, you know, it, it, that's, first of all, he doesn't look like a serial killer. Whatever serial killer looks like, he, that's not what I had in my mind, and I'm not alone in that thought. I think 20 million New Yorkers thought the same thing. The other thing was, uh, uh, and this is really funny, when they brought him into police headquarters, they had, like, this big press conference, and they had an easel of this, of, like, a poster-sized picture of the sketch, the, the, the sketch they were using to catch the son of Sam. And it's clearly not Berkowitz, which I just thought was so funny. It's like, don't they realize that that photo that they put up doesn't match the guy they're marching through the halls? I mean, if you go back and watch newscasts and read the papers, that was that was all over town. Every, everyone was talking about it. It doesn't look anything like him. And then, you know, then you go back to the nine sketches that were released during the uh, the shootings over a, I don't know six seven month period two of them clearly are Berkowitz and seven of them clearly are not Berkowitz I mean it's as simple as that there's one sketch of of a person with like a, a very straight hair coming down and curving in under the chin um, which was happened to be a very popular hairstyle for women uh, back in the seventies I'm not sure what they call it I want to say a bob but I know it's not a bob. And uh, very fine features, and it's been said it's either a woman or a person of Asian descent. Nothing about that, that sketch looks like Barkowitz. That sketch was supposedly the driver of the Volkswagen exiting the Brooklyn shooting scene of Stacey Moskowitz. So that's one, but that's the proof there. 
If you're looking at this case and you just went through all this stuff, right? You just wrote a book? Mm, yes. Tell me about that. I just finished a book. It'll be published in hopefully in April. Mm-hmm. The tentative title is David Barkowitz Didn't Shoot Me. Mm-hmm. And it's basically my story from the night I was shot until basically today. It ends with a series of uh, correspondence between myself and Barkowitz um, in prison. My goal to communicate with Barkowitz was to get those answers I've been looking for. To date, we've sent, uh, I don't know, seven or eight letters mm-hmm. uh, back and forth, and um, he apologizes for you know what he's done. But a- as of now, he hasn't uh, released any new information to me as to you know my burning questions, like who shot me. Did he say you that know? he was the guy who shot you? That, he hasn't addressed that issue in our correspondence, but anyone that's familiar with the case back in 93, uh, Maury Terry did a jailhouse interview with him where he plainly states that he didn't shoot me. And Maury asked him, do you know who did? And he said, yes. And uh, he said it was a woman. To this date, I, I have I have two, two suspects that could be, you know, one of the two women, but, um, you know, until until I get uh, more more uh, information from a source like David Berkowitz, still up in the air. So, who told you about the two women? Well, Maury had said at some point there were several women in the uh, Twenty Two Disciples of Hell, and some of them were shooters. He identified uh, one, the woman who was not at any of the scenes, but she was part of the cult. The other names he, he hasn't mentioned, but, you know, in private conversations with Maury, uh-huh. you know, he told me the two. And one of the women um, is known to uh, be a gun owner and knows how to handle a gun. And the fact that I'm here talking to you today kind of tells me it probably wasn't her because, you know, if, if you know how to handle a gun and you're using a forty four. I should be dead. You know, I'm laying my money on the second woman. Well, I happened to meet the ballistics detective who worked on my case uh, many years later, and I believe it was 1990. And he told me that in the report he wrote, and it was basically based on the wildness of the shooting, that it was either a 90-pound weakling or a woman. So there's um, John and Michael Carr, uh, who were both... Um, both died uh, within 18 months mm-hmm. of Berkowitz's capture. Both of them very suspicious. One, uh, John was, uh, they ruled it a suicide. And later the Minot Police Department, Detective Coop, I believe, changed it to possible homicide. This is John Carr? John Carr uh, actually was in New York, fled New York. And the reason I use the word fled is when he got back to Minot, his girlfriend, he was living living with her, and um, she was on her way out um, to some pre, like a party or something. So they only spoke briefly, and the one thing that he did say was that he's afraid that the cops are after him. Right. And uh, when she came back from the party, she found his body, basically his face blown off with a shotgun. You know, it, 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 it appeared it was a suicide, but I... I didn't really think when I saw the pictures of the crime scene, but it just seemed to me that a shotgun is a kind of strange way to shoot yourself. The crime scene photos had the rifle laying next to him, which I just didn't think would happen. 
there's also a rumor, uh, Maury Terry, uh, that in in his blood, um, SOS was written on the uh, baseboard. Who was the other person who was alleged to have shot you? Not that we believe that person did it or anything to that effect. The name that Maury gave me was... Uh, Is that a real person? Uh, <sighs> I think it is. I mean, there's, uh, Lord knows, there, there's a ton. If Berkowitz would repeat that today, he didn't say the name, but he did say in 93, uh, but that's quite a while ago. But if he said, yes, was, I would certainly act on that. Did you ask him in your letters to him? Yes, I have. He's been very responsive. He, again, he hasn't given me any concrete information, but I have hopes in the way he's writing me back. He said, this is a very difficult time for me. Um, it's hard for me to talk about this. And I've, I'm just appealing to his, um, his religious side and his humane side. He says he's saved and he's found God. And my response to him is, my God is a forgiving God, but you have to confess your sins. You can't just say, I'm sorry, and you're absolved and everything's fine. So in my opinion, and it's just my opinion, until David Barkowitz comes clean and you know gives closure to, to the victims, I mean, at least to the victims, if not to, you know the law enforcement and everything else, I don't think he's saved or absolved. One of the letters he did state that, um, speaking to a lawyer, I believe is how he put it, um, it's not in his best interest to uh, talk about the case, which I understand, you know, but again, I'm in it for selfish reasons. Do you believe Berkowitz? I believe about what he says, what he actually verbalizes, I probably believe 95% of what he says. It's it's what he's not saying is, is the puzzling part. Joining me next is Billy Jensen. Now, you might know Billy from his podcast, The First Degree, or The Murder Squad, or maybe even Unraveled, which is most important to me because it chronicles the case of the Long Island serial killer, which I also covered in my doc series, The Killing Season. Now, as both creators in the true crime space, Billy and I sat down for a discussion about The Son of Sam, which is a case that has fascinated both of us from an early age. So you remember this case? Yes. I remember this case. So I, this was my very first memory of speaking. I was five years old. I was living on Long Island. I was living living on Long Island. Like I was in, a, in an apartment, you know, just, just pumping gas or something. No, I was with my parents. I was growing up on Long Island. That's the word I was using for. And I remember this fear that was over the city in particular, and the city was always a little bit foreign, but he was going into Queens. Queens was only, uh, one of his murder, I actually looked it up last night, I think it was about 10 miles away. And I remember, you know, my dad always watching the news and watching all of these things. And we didn't call him Son of Sam. We called him the 44 caliber killer. He, yes, he, he gave himself the, that name. And then people, some people started using it. I think the daily news used it more than the, more than the Pope, but, but 44 caliber killer is what we were, you know, because that was his original name because of the ballistics matching up for all of the different crimes. So I remember my dad showing me a, a front cover one day, he had come home from work and Newsday was a afternoon newspaper. And the headline says, we have him. And it was a picture of Berkowitz, you know, walking out with his shirt undone 
And I remember looking at him and going, he looks like a turkey in the vernacular <laughs> of the day. Like, you know, like that's what he would, that's what you would use yeah, as, a, he's a as a kid. Yeah. Look at that turkey. Look and, at that turkey. Yeah. Dad. And, um, you know, that planted the seed. I think that was my first image of me speaking. And it was also the first time I was cognizant of true crime. I think probably maybe a year later, I'm like washing the truck, my dad's paint truck, my dad was a pa house painter, washing the truck and we're listening to the White Album with only one speaker because he would drag one speaker out of the living room. So it was all like, you didn't hear half the song. <laughs> this is before Bose and, and uh, Bluetooth. And uh, Helter Skelter's on and he's explaining to me Helter Skelter and explaining me the myth of Helter Skelter, which is the, the Manson myth. And they killed this, this, this actress. And, you know, the story back then before it got was that, you know, they, they had horribly cut her baby out of her. That was one of the stories that turns out that not to be true. But so my first two things in true crime were, and these are very much a lot of other people's too, was Son of Sam and Manson. So when this book comes along, my mother gets this book when, when I'm 14 <laughs> years old. She reads it in four or five days. And my mother was a big like horror fan. Of, you know, She read Rosemary's Baby. She'd read these. But she started getting into true crime. She reads this book. And that book had a very like horror cover. If you remember the original yes, book of Maury Terry's Burke, it had the dog on there. So um, the uh, she gives me the book and I read it and it starts, you know, 3000 miles away in Stanford. And I'm, we're in a church in Stanford with the Arliss Perry case. And I was like, what is this? Yep. And then it just did a really putting the conspiracy things aside. It did a really good job of laying out all the facts of the case. Then he starts going on his thing. And then you could take that you know, with a grain of salt, you can believe it, you can not believe it. But he laid out the facts of this case and really draws you in with all of the particulars and how close things were and all of that stuff. For me, I look at the book in two different parts. The first part is the Son of Sam investigation. And the second part is all the other satanic craziness. And his his original investigation, I thought was great. It's when you know, he started to write the articles and, and double down and the cops started to call him a conspiracy nut that I think he started to go down the, the proverbial rabbit hole, mm -hmm. if you will. Um, and Maury was, uh, he was inclined to believe in conspiracy. There are, you know, in addition to the Son of Sam box, there was the um, JFK box. So he went down that that route just like you did. Uh, there's the Zodiac box, and there is the uh, Atlanta child murder box, and and you know I was didn't want to go down those rabbit holes. I was just willing to stay here. You know, whenever you talk about conspiracy, you know it's always this. You know, how can three people keep a secret if two of them are dead? That's what it always is. Of course, but you know what we've got. Th that's the thing with this case is that you had both of those Carr brothers being dead, and it's just like okay, so what's going on here? The ticket, right? The mm -hmm. ticket is one of the one of the tropes of New York crime yes. history, right? The ticket, right? It is the greatest piece of New York detective work in all of history. Mm -hmm. Well, I say that that's untrue, and the reason I say that that's untrue in the podcast is because. The Yonkers police knew about David Berkowitz before this was going down. They knew about David Berkowitz before Moskowitz. They had actually, um, Yonkers police had made the connections that Maury Terry had made in terms of, wait a second, there's a guy sending letters up here and the letters 
very much have the same language and even the same handwriting as the Son of Sam letters. He's talking about 22 disciples. There's a guy named Craig Glassman who is an auxiliary policeman, and we find 22 bullets are outside of his door in, in a fire. So the Yonkers police knew about David Berkowitz. They knew he'd been writing letters. They knew issue, he, somebody had issues with the dogs, somebody's firebombing places, and somebody's shooting the car's dog. So they kind of make all these connections, and they start to look at David Berkowitz. Not only do they look at David Berkowitz, but they get letters, and they send letters to the FBI. And literally, as the letter is arriving at the FBI's office, that's when the Moskowitz thing kind of rolls around, and suddenly the ticket happens. And as you know, with the ticket, you know, they call up to Yonkers, and the call is transferred, and the operator jumps on the phone, and it's Wheat Carr, who happens to be so the weird. sister, right? So weird or not? Or, or conspiracy. Is it conspiracy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or conspiracy? Well, listen, I think that because you had this task force, because this was the biggest manhunt in New York City history, it was gripping the city. Nobody wanted to go out. Nobody wanted to sit in cars. Um this was so there was so much fear that was just hanging over the city and a city that was bankrupt the fact that they were able to get him they were not they were not going to go and say yeah we had our eye on this guy we let him yeah. go and shoot two more people while right. we were waiting for the FBI to to draw up a profile now they would never say that in a million years it's a much better narrative to say that look we you know we did our, our shoe leather detective work. We asked around, somebody said that they, uh, you know, around the time of the murders, they were, they saw a cop writing parking tickets. They found the parking tickets. They found, uh, this guy Berkowitz. They followed him. They look in his car, they see a gun, they wait for him to come out. And then that's how they get him. But yeah, it's, no one's going to say, yeah, we, we had our eye on this guy because then, you know, Stacey Moskowitz's mom is really going to be out for <laughs> wanting to get the heads of all of these people, uh, which she should be, you know, because what was yeah, this yeah, task yeah. force doing then if they really did? And listen, there's a lot of, quote unquote, you know, uh, unstable people in New York, uh, especially around that time period. But if you had a guy that was using so similar language, remember, language is so big. When you have a guy that's writing a letter to the cops, it makes it that much more easy. That's how we caught the Unabomber. The Unabomber, who was very, very intelligent, that's how he tripped up because his his brother sees the the uh, the language and the way that he uses words and says, I think that's my brother. You know, they don't catch him uh, otherwise. New York City in 1977 was not a nice place. It was a scary place. And we're talking Manhattan. We're talking going into Times Square. It was a scary place to go into. And yeah. it wasn't into, you know, that now it's all Times Square is completely distant, di- different. It's really <laughs> Disney-fied right now. But it was, then it was weird. And, uh, you know, the the idea that the police, you know, they had this really bad thing that was that was happening. It was gripping the city. And I can't tell you, you know, this was when New York City was obviously it was a big three newspaper town. They were all fighting for the stories, particularly the news in the post. I was out yeah. on Long Island, so I would see it in, on in Newsday. But it was everybody 
wondering when it's going to happen again. I remember having conversations at the dinner table about my my sisters wanting to go to a disco. And it was just like, can't go to a disco, you know, if it was on the borderline between Queens and Nassau, which is where I grew up. So, I mean, I think the killings really, the closest killing to me was probably 10 miles away. But mm -hmm. uh, it was that sort of thing. And just like the thing with the brown hair and everything. And, you know, I think when it comes to, uh, I completely agree with that. I think they saw that they got him and that they stopped. So yeah. no harm, no foul. Everything's right in the world. One thing that's interesting to me, it's the fact that over the course of this investigation and, and Maury is the idea that this notion of conspiracy has, has changed. Uh, it's changed both in, in you know, po popular media and politics and, and especially in the world of true crime and how you negotiate that in the world of true crime. I don't know. It's just something that I'm, to be honest with you, I, I'm, you know, it was never so supercharged. You know, and I love Satanic Panic, you know, Ricky Casso, mm -hmm. you know, I love all those stories. And it's so interesting that I never thought we would be in another Satanic Panic like we are now. Yeah. I never, I never thought that that would happen. Oh, with, with like Pizzagate and, and all this jazz. With Pizzagate yeah. and this whole, right. And it is, and it is literally, it's literally Satanic Panic part two, Electric Boogaloo. And I, listen, I want to talk about don't want to offend anybody's religion or anything like that, but we've seen how religions have grown, how religions, you know, and I got a master's degree in religious studies. And this is one of the things that I studied was the whole, I remember taking on a, a course called the, the myth of evil. And it was, you know, that the devil is the personification and it's trying to make sense of what, of why things go wrong. You know, there, he must've been under control of Satan because something went wrong. And then it becomes weaponized for political gain. Like we saw with, uh, and land rights and things like that. Like we saw with, uh, the Salem witch trials and you mm -hmm. know, two different, two different types of, uh, of, of different people in the community and what they're trying to get out of a certain, you know, whatever. And then they said, no, that person, you know, worship Satan. So, you know, I think, <sighs> It's so weird. It is weird. You wouldn't think it would come out now, but I think we're really just, we're using Satan in uh, interchangeable with evil. And, you know, and I think that's how we always have. And it's just easy to put, you know, it makes us feel better to put a face on it like that. The other interesting thing that happened is, you know, Maury Terry does this story and he, he gives it out to the world. He has to battle the press mythologies that have been codified by the first, the police by saying it or Berkowitz, then the police and then the press, you know, mm -hmm. uh, a demon dog, a demon dog. And then he's got to go up against those mythologies, you know, and, and uh, you know, it's print the legend, right? Mm -hmm. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Right. So yeah. he's rising up against that, right? The, the police are calling him a crackpot, just like the police who called me this morning to tell me I was a crackpot. They did. The police called you a crackpot. Uh, one of the one of the investigators called me up and says, "Oh, this is bullshit. What what the fuck are you doing? You know, come on, you trying to make money?" I was like, "Bro, I wouldn't be in documentaries if yeah, I right. wanted to yeah. make money." People don't really you're fucking... trying to make money. That yeah, we would clearly be inscripted if we were trying to. Make you're on money. Netflix. It's like you have no fucking clue what you're talking about. <laughs> but Thanks yeah, it's me. it's very it is strange. It's a weird time, and you would think that with all of the technology that we have. It was easy and it was fascinating before the internet. And I, oftentimes I lament pre-internet and pre-cable television because 
myths could grow, you know, but myths usually get shot down and folklore gets shot down like that. Um, because people can look it up in a second and say, that's not true. You know? So like, you know, the myths that we had when, you know, when I was growing up, the actor that played Mikey in, um, in the life cereal commercial had died from eating pop rocks and drinking soda. That right. was a thing, you know, and then you can look it up now and Snopes will tell you, no, that's not true. But like that was the thing that would constantly happen. You know, this whole thing in the series where Berkowitz writes more a letter and says, look, you can have all the evidence in the world and it doesn't matter. Right. People will never, ever believe you. They will always believe that I'm a madman. And I find that fascinating. Maury would have had a great podcast. You know, we're listening to podcasts right now. Uh, you know, oh my Maury God, yes. would have had if, if we would have had a producer that kept him on track he would have had a great podcast and it would have been gripping. Now, I hope our doc series and this podcast have challenged you to rethink the story you thought you knew about the son of Sam. And of course, come to your own conclusions. But I hope it also makes you think about the people behind the crimes, not just the victims or the criminals or those that bring them to justice. But in this case, the storytellers, the people who dedicate their lives while trying to uncover the truth. I'm Josh Zeman, and as always, thanks for listening. four-part Netflix docuseries, The Sons of Sam, A Descent into Darkness, is streaming now on Netflix. This podcast is a production of Netflix and Tenderfoot TV in association with Gigantic Studios. Thanks for listening.